You are listening to The Path Podcast on Mountain Bike Radio. Welcome to another episode of The Path Podcast. We have a very special episode here today. We are um, hanging out in the conference room at Intent Cycles, and we are privileged to be uh, sitting here with Jeff Steber. Welcome. Hey, guys. Um, really excited to be here. Uh, hey, great intro there, bringing back some old memories. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you might like that one. Yeah, that was... Um that's a little time capsule there. Um, pretty magical time in um, the history of Intense, for sure, with um, Palmer there and the original Chainsmoke um, VHS. Oh, man. We used to play them in the shop. Those yeah. the good old days when you could play some VHS tapes or CDs or DVDs in the shop. I think yeah, a little Slayer in there even, um, possibly, um, you know, to, to set the mode there for that uh, time and era of uh, mountain biking and um, intense cycles, I would say, for sure. Yeah. Iconic. Yeah, that was cool. I, I had that VHS, and I'm pretty sure I dang near wore it out. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a little different show. We're here at the Intense headquarters, um, and um, here with Jeff, the founder of Intense, and uh, we got a little tour. Pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a super awesome operation. Um really clean i mean um as far as uh you got you guys got some prototyping capabilities here you got a cool warehouse assembly um really awesome um entryway it sounds like you guys are working on with a lot of bikes on display it's a really cool place yeah um thanks for that guys um it it has been a long process um you know evolving and getting to where we're at now i feel we're kind of in a renaissance as a brand and um you know and it's about time and um you know we've been here in temecula now since uh, 2000 um but um you know pretty modest digs here um but we we get a lot of mileage out of it and um, like you said, our prototyping lab is a really important part of um, the facility here. Um, also, it's, um, you know, we get a lot. We build, I build a lot of frames in there. So legend has it, and the, and the image that I have in my mind, Jeff, is you back there by yourself dreaming up these new lines and these artistic <laughs> executions and these, these bikes that are for filling um, riders' needs that other brands aren't filling, especially in the early days with downhill um, is that, is that real? Is that you in there? Well, yeah. Um, especially Building back in the day. Offs. Yeah. I think I used to, um, build bikes that I wanted for my own personal quiver, or there was a demand from the race team, um, for something specific. And, you know, there was never back in the day and, you know, we're talking, um, you know, the, the early years, um, when the brand was really just being defined, and I'm kind of making its mark, but um, there was no business plan or anything like that. And it was just really, um, you know, out of passion um, and for uh, a love of riding mountain bikes and, you know, single track and downhill racing. And um, but, you know, there's something um, pure and core about that. And um, people gravitate towards it. Um, you know, it was also a kind of a magical era back then for mountain biking with World Cup. 
um, and a lot of strong characters out there in, in downhill racing and getting a lot of press. Um, and, you know, uh, call it luck or a good timing or whatever, but, you know, we happened to have some very unique um, f- frames at the time that really stood out in the crowd. And then, you know, it doesn't hurt to have uh, in that time and era a really unique character like Sean Palmer to be riding that bike and, you know, you can make a big splash. So well, and everyone knew that a lot of the other big riders were riding intenses with their logos. Yeah, I was, just about to, I was just about to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, it did open the door um, for a lot of that because at, at the time, um, you know, downhill racing really took off and was kind of like, you know, hey, the circus is in town and it's exciting. It kind of put uh, mountain biking a little bit more on the map. Um, you know, they could actually televise it and have something pretty exciting to watch. There was a Reebok Eliminator, things like this going on. Um, got a Thunder Downhill events that were put on for specifically for television. And then, you know, there was some big personalities and characters that came out of that era too. So it was really cool to have been, um, you know, to kind of forge the, the beginnings of the company in that environment. Um, yeah, good times for sure. I can uh, only imagine. Yeah. I have yeah. a lot of really good memories. Um, and you know, um, it's good in a, in a authentic brand, you know, the, to have that heritage and we, we have it. Um, and, um, it's there and, um, you know, a lot of people are fans and, and longtime, um, customers know the heritage really well. And, um, but, you know, now, um, you know, things have changed a little bit, um, and we're about evolving and growing and, and, um, being mean and lean and, um, you know, being the guys that are at the forefront and creating trends and that sort of thing. So we're about, you know, just as much as about the past and, um, we're about the now and the future too, you know, and that's kind of where it's all evolving to currently, but, you know, you got to know where you came from to be Absolutely. able to know where you're going to go. So it's, it's really good to have that. So tell us a little bit more about where, where we came from here at Intense. We, we came from, do we come from street, Steve, Jeff's garage? Do we? Well, um, yeah, you pretty much hit the nail on the head there. Um, and I'm just really, uh, one of more of a designer artist craftsman kind of a guy. So, uh, if I get into something, I usually have to try and um, do my own version of it, make improvements on it of some sort. So, you know, example, I get into playing guitar right away. I'm building my own guitar and trying to put my own spin on it, you know. Um, same with the the mountain bike when I found, um, you know, kind of a love for um, uh, for cycling, you know, beyond my um, younger childhood years. But um, as more of an adult, um, discovered mountain biking. Um, and right away I, I saw an opportunity for improvement and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, I was kind of the mad scientist in my garage, just tinkering with things and building stuff and, you know, having a good time. Um, the early days, um, you know, when I first started making some prototypes and bikes that really worked well, um, you know, it was pretty much forged in SoCal. Um, I lived in Lake Elsinore, kind of on the border of the Cleveland National Forest there. So, um, the San Juan Trail, which uh, everyone in SoCal, you know, is pretty familiar with that trail and that network. Yes, I've run into you out on the San Juan Trail. That was cool. Yeah. Um, in the early days, um, I literally on the weekend would ride out to Cocktail Rock and just hang out there for the morning crew to climb up there and hang out a little bit. And they'd see my bike and go, wow, can I take a little spin? You know, that was like the early sales room. So what year do you think? <laughs> Very that organic. Might have been? 
Um, I would say um, at that time it was uh, 1990 to 93 and nice. that range there. Yeah. Um, it was actually in 1993 then that I kind of, you know, um, had enough interest in, in basically um, the balls to like, you know, go full time. And mm. um, that was the first year I showed an interbike show um, and had a little modest 10 by 10 booth. Um and it was the, I remember the show that year was at the Hilton Convention Center in Las Vegas. And, um, I pretty much was down to my last $300 in, you know, in my nice. pocket. Wow. Uh, drained the bank account to just to get there and buy all the parts to build up, you know, my sample bikes and everything. And, um, pretty much within the, um, first couple hours of the show, especially with the international crowd there, I had set up some, my first international distributors, um, some of my first dealers and uh, sold all my show samples, you know, and I, I went home with some, um, cash in my pocket and some dealers and distributors and I was in business. Awesome. What was yeah. the first model called? Um, that was the spider, nice. yeah, the original spider, which was a three inch travel. I remember um, those. Yeah. It was a horse link. Yeah. Except, and yeah. it was, I remember back then the specialized bikes had a lot of slop in the rear ends and not a very laterally stiff execution of the horse link and intense made a horse link that actually felt good. Yeah. There was a lot of, uh, things that uh, were a little different in coming from a different angle of, uh, you know, not actually being a, a bicycle frame builder or having any uh, formal training or apprenticeship or anything in frame building, but more from other things I was into aerospace. Um, I used to work for a company designing and building hang gliders and ultralights, um, surf sailing products, oh, cool. um, you know, tweaking on motorcycle bikes, motorcycles, motocross, that sort of thing, cars. And so, you know, I just approached it from uh, kind of a uh, open box kind of a, you know, mentality um, and thinking outside the box, so to say. Um, and, um, you know, came up with something different. Um, what do you think what were some of the distinctive things about that? I think it was one of the first bikes that had cartridge bearings and all the bits. Yeah, um, you know, just from experience working on suspension and stuff um, and cars and motorcycles or whatever, um, you know, like the – first thing is to get rid of stiction so i just i never really adapted the uh, the era some of the full suspension bikes that were out there at the time were using bushings and plastic you know i just bearings bushings things like that and you know i just right away eliminated some of those things and uh, you know hey seal cartridge bearings were from day one yeah. Uh, yeah. cnc machine parts instead of just tube to tube construction and so which really um you know was to improve uh, structural integrity things like that but also it really helped shape the intense aesthetic from day one to something that yeah. looked different stood out from the crowd very you know, distinctive and, yeah, yeah and uh, i think when in um 1993 uh, to 95, when I was developing the first M1, then it really paved, the, you know, with the monocoque construction form, yeah. aluminum shells, things like that. Um, even again, we made another, I made another big jump forward in something that was very different, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it, it was uh, kind of, again, um, you know, good timing too to have that bike that was very unique and different, and then get this character Sean Palmer out there riding it and turning some heads. So, you know, good timing, good luck, whatever it was. Um, you know, it was uh, a very magical time to be involved in. I think in the history of mountain biking. Do you think we could ever go back to a time where our sports on TV and our athletes make big money? 
Um, I think at some levels it's there when you look at, uh, you know, I think the top level mountain bike athletes probably make a decent living when yeah. you look at it and the smart ones that, um, leverage themselves properly. And, and this day and age where, you know, um, you know, media reach, uh, through internet and, um, that sort of web marketing kind of stuff is just as important as getting on um, podiums and, 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 you know, wins at the racetrack, um, personalities, you know, some people figure it out and some don't, but the, the opportunity is there for sure. So that's a good tip for young racers who want to get, make something of themselves is you got to win races, but you got to be a personality too. Yeah. There's a full package with anything like that. Um, and you know, uh, don't want to drone on Sean Palmer, but, um, you know, he, he's a, a really interesting character in a lot of ways and a, a really good guy and a huge heart. And a lot of people might not know him for that. Um, but, you know, he's had his demons, too, that he's had to deal with. And I think that's some of the motivation that drove him to be such a fierce competitor um, and to push the limits. You know, he was the a guy early on that wouldn't settle for like even his equipment, you know, he's got ideas and, and us pairing up in the early years, you know, saying, Hey, could you, you know, we need to get a linkage on here, like on a motocross bike and it's to be more supple and, you know, and some of this feedback that he drove some of the development then for sure. He's a, he's a tinker craftsman himself and probably not really known for that because some of the other personality traits overshadow, (laughs) but, but he's, yeah, if you've seen some of his cars and things, he loves that sort of thing. I think that's where he's really at peace is when he's doing that sort of you know, like myself, that's probably where we're a lot alike just as much as we're very different in certain ways. So, so how many yeah. days a year or whatever do you still spend with a torch in your hand? Um, well, if you were talking this week, if you were here yesterday or the, this whole week, uh, quite a bit because uh, we were uh, just finishing up some prototypes for a new project. Um, our factory, uh, Intense Factory Racing Team is in town at our um, team camp. And um, we're working on a lot of fun new projects for this year. And so just getting stuff ready for them to do product testing, um, prototype testing. Yeah, so we've been um, – there's been a lot of, um, you know, tubes being cut and, and welds being dropped in the R&D shop here recently for sure. Cool. So you talk about a renaissance, and I feel like I can see some of the – the outcomes of the Renaissance in the product and in the, in the, um, industrial design and in the rides and, um, tell us more though. Tell us about this Renaissance. Well, um, you know, it's, it was really a, a lot of personal growth on my own part too. um, being a business owner and also like being kind of, uh, you know, the, one of the like the main partner you know in a business um but also holding a position and and this is a common thing in small businesses and that are um you know um, privately held you know where uh the the owners are also uh, uh you know the president ceo kind of thing cfo slash but you know there's a point where maybe that's not your strength and you can actually hold your own company back um where it has a lot of potential. And that's kind of the intense story. Um, me being, um, you know, I can self-admit I'm much more of the creative side than the yeah. financial guy. Sometimes I feel like the path has outgrown my organizational <laughs> skills and my leadership skills for sure. Yeah. And so, you know, one thing, you know, um, along the way, just by osmosis or whatever you want, us doing what we did, the passion, we 
grew this pretty large, like, known um, global brand, the Intense Cycles brand. And, you know, there was a point where I always felt like the brand cast this huge shadow over the actual size of the business itself. So there was a lot of upward mobility, you know, direction to go for the, the company to grow into the brand itself. Um, and, you know, being, I guess, sort of a reluctant businessman, it was really not my forte. And um, my partner, um, who was more um, handling the nuts and bolts and business side of things, um, the same thing. You know, we, we reached a point where we pretty much, you know, we're tapped out on our, our talents in that respect of where we could go, our threshold. But we did realize that. And so there, um, you know started asking questions and I was actually uh, mentored by some, you know, some people who were, um, had impressive business backgrounds and, and achieved, you know, some great things that I respected and looked up to. Some Maybe even you can give me some of their numbers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and some of them, you know, are, are actual true success stories. And, you know, I read all the books, um, let my people go surfing, good to great, small giants, you know, and, and it all was, a, like I said, it's part of personal growth um, to get there and flip that switch that was the next to take intense to the next level. Um, and, um, you know, the best thing along the way that I, I can say that I did is along the way, we didn't spoil the brand you know, and sell out somewhere to where now it wasn't able to do that. So the, it's a clear path ahead. The idea is to free you up to do the things that made intense great in the first place. Right. Yeah. And, um, I think, um, for me, um, you know, I'm like one of those, I'm the luckiest guy in the world that I get to do every day. I look forward, I get to look forward to my job, you know, and, um, I really enjoy, what I'm doing and seeing, um, progress. Pretty cool toys in your workshop. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's what inspires me, um, to ride is, uh, you know, I got to constantly kind of outdo myself and come up with something new that inspires me to want to ride more. So, um, I think that's why there's this constant improvement or progression of product for one, and um, I'm rather prolific with it from the standpoint that I have to get my fix, hmm. you know, and that's part, <laughs> yeah. that's part of yeah. it, you know. It's like uh, I jokingly call it feeding the rat, you know, but it's like the monkey on your back kind of thing, but mine is designing and building <laughs> cool mountain bikes, you know. You fat. Lucky it's an, guy, right? Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Um, but um, that aside, um, I don't want to focus too much on it, you know, these days, it really is a, a little different scenario because there's a whole group of people working together as a team, and that's how we're getting where we're going. And and especially even on the product development side, because, you know, there's even within that capsule, I have my strengths and there's some of my, you know, weaknesses have been the weaknesses of our bikes maybe in the past. But now, you know, we've got some ninjas in there that are specialists at, at certain things. And so the bike development, I look at it more as, uh, you know, the, um, the whole as a sum of the parts kind of approach now with the, the team that is working together to create these, the, the, you know, the new uh, models that you're seeing. And the outcome is JS tuned. Well, that's, that's, um, part of it. Um, 
And there's a little story behind that, um, if you want to get into that. Um, yeah, I think people need to hear about JS Tuned and, and how what, what, it, what it means and, and how it's similar and different from VPP and, and how it's not just a suspensions platform. Yeah, so, um, you know, and it's pretty widely known that, um, you know, for the past years, um, Intense had a partnership um, as the sole licensee of the VPP technology with Santa Cruz Bicycles. Um, and I have to say Did they that, buy it from Outland? Yes, um, it was purchased from Outland. But then, you know, it went through quite a bit of tweaking, um, initial um, perimeters that the, the patent covered, basically. But then... Um, you know, both Santa Cruz, obviously, and Intense um, worked together to evolve the platform into the current iterations that we're, you know, and we're, we're seeing today. Um, and I have to say that um, that was a, you know, um, has been and had been a really um, rewarding relationship in so many ways of um, with the Santa Cruz guys. A good group of people, even, you know, from um, a brand um, side product and, uh, you know, the management team and engineering, everything. I made a lot of good friends there. They're still friends with these people today um, and probably always will be. And, you know, um, uh, just an incredible working relationship and, and the integrity of working together with, um, you know, you could look at as a competitor. Right. But I think um, initially Intense came on board as an endorser of, you know, we had a pretty uh, good reputation as a suspension company. And and at the time, maybe even a little bit um, stronger brand in than um, Santa Cruz just for full suspension bikes, a little higher end. So, you know, we were kind of bringing that to the table and maybe a way to work and improve. But, you know, when you look the different paths the companies took, you know, um, Rob at the helm of the company, Rob Roskop, is, you know, his strengths are more from the business side of things. Um, Branding and marketing and business yeah, development. Yeah. Ex exactly. Um, and he had a really strong men mentor and his, his partner from um, Santa Cruz Distribution. Um, and, you know, um, he just, you know, went for it. And um, that's a success story right there. Um and um, intense, maybe a little different path, you know, along the way. But we always complemented each other um, as far as product. And we um, along the way, we plan to make, you know, like a, we had yearly you know, several meetings a year to plan our product launches and things. So so that um, we weren't com directly competing and intense, always put its own spin and geometry and the feel of the bike and stuff. And so. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, the uh, patent actually expired. And so there was, it was a good time, um, to move on and, um, onto new and, you know, kind of on our own. And, and Santa Cruz was, uh, working on the pinnings of a deal with, um, that transpired in the last year, um, with the Pong Group. So, um, it was, you know, it's just, you know, in, in the scope of things, it was really good timing. Um, you know, and, and under the um, licensing arrangement, we were always a little bit, um, I wouldn't say restricted, but, you know, we had to stick to, 
and you know, uh, there's guidelines um, type of thing. But there was always stuff I kind of wanted to do with it, maybe that wasn't accessible at the time through the through the agreement. So um, in turn, that's opened us up now to be a little more free thinking with with the system. It's still a um, a floating pivot, uh, dual counter rotating link design. Um, but in bringing it to the JS Tune concept, now full circle here, um, the idea was, and I always had this in the back of my mind that, you know, we're in the business of selling complete bikes now. And um, I felt like, you know, um, the days of the big patented suspension system that drove the brand or, you know, the bike was all about, you know, that thing um, has kind of come and gone a bit. And, um, I wanted to put a little different approach to it because, again, we're selling complete bikes. So um, the JS Tune inc- doesn't just encompass the suspension kinematics. It's a much bigger picture than that. It's a, a kind of a, a combination of things being, you know, you know, the suspension geometry, the specification of the bikes, basically the parts that are hung on it to make it a complete bike, the a- aesthetic and ergonomic side of it, too. All those things kind of balancing out. And then um, even optimized for the segment the bike is designed for. So, um, you know, taking it that approach a little differently. And, you know, we could have put cluttered the bike up with a bunch of Ackermans for, you know, like center forward geometry and all this sort of stuff. But it's much more elegant, I think, to encompass it under the one label, um, you know, and that's so- kind of the idea. So JS Tune includes the current three different linkage designs: the the yes. trail link, the enduro link, and the downhill link. Right. So, so what it did there was um, within our suspension platform, um, we wanted to optimize the bike and not compromise for different segments. So whereas um, you know we we could we have our what we call now uh, three different configurations of the architecture of the now we're talking the suspension kinematics now okay. um that module of jazz tune um because it's probably the most again most visual and the changes on and the differences on the bikes that you see visually so um you know um prior to the launch of um you know current bikes um there's been, uh, you know, where the short, the, the current link design is using a shorter link design that um, produces a certain type of uh, shock curve and a certain feel to it, which we feel is optimum for bikes up to about 150 millimeter travel. And then we introduce a new linkage that's kind of somewhere um, that's in the middle for like enduro bikes that are 165 to so let's say 170. And then we have our downhill link, the DH link, which is more for, for downhill bikes, um, which is our M16. And they all create a different feel, um, you know, and, and uh, when you look at the suspension curve, it's a very uh, different. Um, but um, again, we could take that same short, link system and force it into a 165 travel mm-hmm. bike but it wouldn't be optimum so to say for that right. travel for the shorter travel bike yes so that's, the shorter that's our travel feeling. bike maybe has a little more anti-squat or yeah um you know a um, little more platform designed into it and you know um also um on the the bikes like the spider and the primer um this is your kind of classic floating pivot dual link um type of a shock curve that's regressive progressive and that 
nature it gives the bike a little bit of a feeling like it's um uh has more travel than it does almost a bottomless feel to it linear through the mid-stroke yeah and so you know really aimed at something the consumer is going to really like it feels comfortable um it performs really well uh, equally well climbing and descending so and and balanced and you don't feel it any negative traits of it and does this still have kind of an s-shaped wheel path yeah, I mean, if you really dial down and look at what's going on there, um, the system is still set up with the counter-rotating links. Where but the it, S isn't as dramatic, right? It's n- No, um, and it's probably not as important, so we don't focus on it much. But it is, you know, the bike is set up at SAG to where it's um, it's kind of riding neutral to where there's there's no chain forces being put into the suspension and vice versa. You Would know, you so say you're depending less on chain force for the anti-squat than before? Um, as you get into the, the more the enduro and the, the downhill link bikes for sure. Mm, yeah. But there's a nice, and also those bikes uh, do get um, a bit more rearward wheel path, which is really important when you get into yeah. bigger travel to maintain momentum and for race bikes. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. what are there any other differences between the JS2 and iterations of these bikes versus the previous that you want to highlight? Um, not really. Um, it is kind of, um, you know, maybe a, l- a lot to, you know, wrap around. It's, it's the JS2 concept itself is um, it's a little different approach to it. Yeah. Um, but um, the main um, goal behind it is that we're focusing on the segment of the bike to be uh, you know, like the best it can be, like a, to be a segment leader within in the, whether it's a trail bike or enduro bike or a downhill bike, and not making any compromises in like um, you know sticking to one specific platform. Right. Would that include things like moving the link forward to accommodate shorter chain stays? Yeah. Any you know or the. Uh, uh, architecture of the construction itself to accommodate, you know, bigger wheels, um, more travel, things like that. Um, part of the the actual layout of the frame and the suspension hard points to accommodate those things. So, you know, we're here for a reason that we should probably get to eventually. We yeah. came out. We came out here because we wanted to see a new bike. We're here on February twenty fifth, but this ep- this is not going to air Jan- January twenty fifth. Yep. But this is not going to air till February seventh because we're going to talk about this new tracer. You know, yeah. you could tell I was getting a little nervous here because we're. <laughs> I was wondering, is this live right now? No, no, no. no. <laughs> yeah. So, and I was figured I was trying to find something to write on. Yeah. This is funny because, and I'm sweating a little bit. I'm going, are they going live? I don't want to say anything. No, yeah. no, it yeah. lives right here on these recorders. <laughs> okay, so we're that, gonna... that is funny because I was actually holding back there a little bit as I was going, and I'm like, oh no, we're live. It's okay. So intense yeah. is on February seventh when yeah. this on the day this show airs, we will have the new tracer in the Path Bike Shop for you to come pedal around in the neighborhood. So and, cats out of the bag. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Nathan and I just did a little neighborhood test ride on the new tracer and, and we're ready to share some observations. Um, yeah. Let's start with a quick outline of what the bike is. Yeah. Yeah. I, one thing I just wanted to kind of explain, uh, I mean, obviously our listeners are probably going to see um, this kind of release to the world when this episode comes out. But as, as you were talking about the different um, JS tune options, um, one of the things that really jumped out at me as, as kind of different is in the Enduro category, the JS Enduro, um, the lower link um, 
the forward pivot on the lower link is in front, almost in front of the bottom bracket. And that's something I can't say that I've seen anywhere else before. And um, I guess that that's one thing I wanted to highlight that seems to be unique about your JS Enduro tune. Well, the Enduro link, which we're pretty much showcasing on the new tracer, um, you know, it was through a, a evolutionary process and prototyping, um, you know, early on in the development of the bike. Um, and the end goal was to, uh, you know, s- achieve a, a, a different feel to the suspension and more pure enduro class bike yeah. um, that a little more focus on uh, the downhill um, prowess of the bike, so to say. Um, but still maintain a really efficient climbing, you know, um, in the saddle spinning up the hill, um, you know, and, and a good all around trail bike. Um, I would say, you know, looking at from, um, people who were involved from, um, you know, our sales staff, R and D team, I'm ride ambassadors, you know, like uh, example, Brian Lopes, um, this was something he was always pushing for, for an enduro style bike and, uh, was a big driver of moving towards this type of a suspension feel and, uh, on this particular bike. Well, the current tracer has been a huge hit and it's supremely popular. Is it your biggest home run of all time? I would say uh, from its in the Tracer brand when we first introduced it into the line in 2000 um, and has been a consistent top model and top seller um, in our bike line. Um, and it's gone through a lot of changes. Um, you know, uh, back in the day, uh, you know, we probably got a two-year jump on a lot of the industry with 27.5 wheels and yep. yeah. maybe even – coined the phrase uh, 275 over at the time people were calling it 650b and it just didn't make sense to me so we called it 275 because it fit in there with 29 and um so um you know uh we were showing um and actually shipping the tracer 275 in alloy um probably two years before a lot of the competition and then we immediately came out with the carbine 275 so we were well on our way, and then the the Tracer name was really, I think, f- forged in stone then. Um, in 2014, when we launched uh, the current um, Tracer 275 Carbon, again, it's probably, and it is statistically our best-selling bike to date. Um, and, you know, it's been a home run, uh, good-looking bike, Um and a good performer and, you know, again, a solid brand within the brand. Right. Um, and, you know, that's a pretty t- high bench to, yeah. you know. How do you out yourself when you've, when you've got something that good? Well, um, I'll tell you, it's, and it's kind of one of those stories, and I personally call it um, the good to great story. Because, you know, we had uh, the, the current Tracer was, was a really good bike. Um, so how do you better that? How do you make that a great bike? Um, so that was the challenge in front of the, the design team, so to say here. Um, and so very early on and, you know, and through the years, we all had our own little personal things. Well, what would I change on the tracer, you know, from riding it? And it's, this guy says this and another one's. And so, you know, we kind of summed up all those things and we always start a project with, with a, uh, projection of the project scope so to say and what we're trying to achieve 
And, um, you know, so we have a pretty clear map to follow when we, we go into this thing. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, we don't want to take any detours along the way if we don't have to, but sometimes we do. And sometimes the outcome is good that we did that. You know, we learned something along the way. Um, you know, there were points with developing, you know, it, it, it's tough to do that, to outdo yourself. I, I, you know, history, I can think of so many, you know, like rock groups or bands, you know, that they, <laughs> yeah. they never live up to that first album, you know, the self-titled album. Um, and you know, the whole one hit wonder thing, but, um, you know, uh, through the whole process, um, I feel the outcome on the new tracer is freaking awesome. I'm pretty proud of it. Um, and everyone who's worked on it and been involved in it. Um, you know, it was a long prototyping process. Um, we did eight alloy prototypes to get to where we're at. Um, oh, wow. Test mules, all very different. I could line them up and we show them. We saw those in your workshop. Those are cool. Yeah. Um, and so we were just quite not quite satisfied. Or um, this is a – and there's an interesting um, – turn we took with this bike too is where we got an outside developer involved and that's uh, Cesar Rojo from Cerro Design in Barcelona, um, Spain. And, and a lot of people know Cesar, um, you know, from um, his work with um, developing a lot of the current trends in mountain bikes, um, long front centers, short stems, um, hugely successful um, with the developing the Mondraker brand, the Mondraker Summon, you know, yeah, huge success there. Just took the top three podiums at the world championships and downhill, you know, all summons, you know, so um, huge accomplishments there. Um, Cerro Design is a European design house for KTM motorcycles and a lot of other, two, you know, they are very two-wheel eccentric kind of, you know, focused on um, their company. And, um, you know, I'd known Cesar from when he was a pro mountain biker on the global team as a young guy. Um, and he was very interested in, you know, out there with intense factory racing at the World Cups. And he was very interested in bike design and would come around and was always curious because we kind of, you know, we had some interesting stuff back then. And, you know, later he went on um, to university and degrees in industrial design and engineering and what have you. And um, later started up Cerro Design as a design house for um, industrial design projects and things like that. And we'd always meet at Interbike Show or, you know, Taipei and just in the bike scene because he was working in the bike industry on projects too, besides the motorcycle stuff and things like that. And we'd say, well, hey, let's do a project together someday. And you know, huge respect for what he had been doing. And like I said, it's like um, the opportunity came around when um, over the last couple of years, we've been opening up our um, intense Europe headquarters, which happened to be based in Barcelona, Spain, um, and where we do all of our European distribution out of. Um, and, um, Cerro Design is there. So as opportunity, you know, that we see each other and, and to start working on some projects. Did so, they help with the recluse as well? Um, no, um, but you'll see starting with the new tracer and on, there's going to be some interesting, um, you know, like I said, I, it's, it's kind of like getting some new blood into the system and some, you know, again, trying to stay on the forefront of things. So, mm -hmm. um, it's been a, um, a really great, uh, and I think the Tracer um, is the first example of that. Um, we work with other developers um, to develop 
say, my carbon or excuse me, the alloy prototypes into a carbon bike. Mm. Um, and the other developer we use is Seed Engineering, which you see Seed on the bikes. I feel like um, there was a, German, a leap forward German when they came on Thomas board. Harder. Yeah. Like the, the Seed bikes definitely seemed like they represented a leap forward in, in yeah, and that's, construction um, and you know, um, that's a, a, a working collaboration in a, you know, a, a design firm, both of these guys that are specialists in, you know, carbon and, and specifically carbon bike design. And, um, I think it's, it's helped us push, um, not only, um, you know, construction and a lot of this stuff, but, um, geometries and suspension and, um, and being open to this sort of stuff, but mm-hmm. also wanting to be, uh, the trendsetter kind of leader, the guys that are out front and not following. Um, so you got to associate yourself with people that also think like, likely people who are yeah. taking ahead of the game. Yeah. yeah. So I, our listeners are pretty technical. I think it would help frame what we're talking about to talk about just if I run through just kind of some of the technical data on the bike. So it's 165 millimeters of rear wheel travel. Is it spec for a 170 fork? Um, well, actually, the the bikes are uh, set at a 160, but the it's uh, the now Chad Peterson probably be a better on the spec, but it it is a fork that's convertible to 170. Sure. The geometry yeah, right. charts yeah. around a 160 fork though. Yeah. So 65 and a half degree head angle, um, 17.2 reach in a medium, which for reference, that's like what Nathan and I would call pretty modernly long. Yep. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, bottom bracket height's 13.5, which for a bike with that much travel is fairly low. 75-degree um, effective seat tube angle. Now, Jeff, do you know if that's measured at this with the seat all the way down or at a specific height? You're talking about the yeah. uh, effective seat yeah. tube angle? Yeah, you know, that's what the seat tube ex- extended out to more of like a where, – where that number becomes more critical when you're climbing – Right, some okay. sort, some right. You know, right. Um, effective C tube angle is a tough one because it's it's <laughs> yeah. really hard to effectively measure it. Even it's only you know, at one height. Yeah, um, uh, because it's kind of a a, a, a invisible line, you right? Know, that's drawn if if it were a conventional constructed bike, you know. Um, and nowadays you see these effective numbers because uh, because of amount of travel and having a seat tube in there, we're using bent seat tubes and things yeah. like that that affect this sort of thing a little more. So I think uh, this is the style of bike Nathan's been calling an EWS bike, which basically yeah. what that means is no holds barred gravity bike that can be pedaled. Right. Yeah, I would agree with that um, to a point because um, – we didn't want it to be such a thoroughbred that it's not going to be a good bike for the weekend warrior. Still a good trail bike for someone right. who wants yeah, a lot of confidence. It, it had to be, and in, in, in the DNA of the Tracer line, the brand within the brand, it had to um, be an awesome trail bike. And sometimes you can, you know, like the, the race bred, thoroughbred kind of thing where it's a little too much. And, and then it has some some characteristics when you just try and go out and have a fun ride on your local single tracks, it's maybe not going to be ideal. But yeah. compared to the previous Tracer, it's pretty clearly moved a little bit in the gravity direction oh, with definitely. more travel, yeah. a slacker head angle, yeah. plush, plusher suspension mapping, I think. Yeah. For sure. And I think one of those goals we set early on with making this bike is we wanted to push it. 
but we didn't want to go too far either. So it still work. pedals really, really well. Oh, yeah. So but did. the gains are mostly on the downhill, I think. I, I would say that's the most noticeable along with the aesthetic um, for sure. Oh, it looks great. I like yeah. the kind of semi-integrated seat collar that goes with the lines of the seat mast. Yeah, that that's a really nice touch, and it's actually it looks like a normal normal seat clamp that's going to clamp properly too. Yeah, I mean that's a really simple thing, um, you know, to kind of focus on. But it but is it speaks you know, to the attention to yeah, detail and yeah. how everything everything is is part of the big. Yeah, it's very in- integrated, and even um, if you you know the aesthetic lines of the bike um, where the uh, seat stays and the sh- shock um, are perfectly in line and almost parallel with the top tube yeah and it gives it a very sleek aesthetic you know and 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 also at the same time you know we have a very low standover on this bike um you can run 170 droppers you know there's plenty of uh, seat tube in there to drop the seat post down into i think that that's going to be um something that actually turns out to be a just a driving decision kind of factor on this bike is you can put a lot of seat post into it yeah, I mean, we got wind of 170 dropper posts during the development early enough on that we were able to make sure that it would accommodate that. Um, sometimes, you know, that's one of the, the uh, you know, when you're developing products, sometimes new industry standards just drive you nuts. You yeah, know, a lot of the competitors, it. though, you really can only put the, the seat post in maybe six, seven inches, and then it really limits what length of dropper you can run. And it looks like that you can put the seat post in almost all the way down to the bottom bracket. Yeah, if you pick your bike sizing properly, and then your um, the the length of, of dropper post, uh, then um, you should be able to have the collar slammed like yeah. that and get the um, extension you need for climbing and stuff. That's really cool, and have it look really slick and integrated. Like, yeah, it it looks super cool, and and the 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 details are are great on it too. Like, uh, I mean, it looks like it's a the. Rear brake mount is a direct mount to a 180 rotor, which that's a really nice touch. It is. Um, the The other thing that's maybe kind of hidden a little bit is we use internal guide tubes for all the internal routing. So there's actually bonded in. Are they um, flexible or rigid? Or They're like a nylon tube that's okay. in there um, for the uh, rear derailleur and the rear brake. Uh, the dropper post, um, now that tube is actually bonded into the side of the tube um, in the carbon layup. And the reason for that is um, the dropper uh, post cable does not exit the bike anywhere it, the tube actually makes a like a almost uh, it's like a little more than a 90 degree bend or on top of above the bottom bracket within the down tube into the seat tube so it makes feeding that cable in there really easy to go around the bend and up right. into the seat so tube. we're not gonna have to take the, the cranks off to route that dropper post maybe no um so we were thinking on this bike where you know it's there's uh a focus on keeping the weight minimal, but it's also one of those things where, um, you know, for ease of maintenance and that sort of thing with the tubes inside there and quiet, quiet running. Bike, yeah. That you know. kind of cable rattle is a big problem with a lot of your competitors. So if, yeah. the, if this eliminates that, that's really cool. So we've always, um, the, the M16 and, you know, the original carbines, we had internal tubes. Um, some of the bikes where we're going more for, um, ultimate weight savings like the um the primer for example we don't run the tubes in there um but you know i think it's actually worth that little 
marginal a couple of grams of, an ounce yeah. or two oh, yeah for sure. to, ha- to have it in there um from from a person who works on it from, from a standpoint of a, a bike technician it's certainly worth it yeah for sure um one of the things uh just running around the parking lot and kind of feeling the bike unfortunately we've had so much rain in southern california we we didn't quite get to ride the bike today but um, on some proper trails, but the rear suspension curve, you know, we were talking about that a little earlier. It felt great. I mean, um, one of your guys mentioned it was coil feel with an air shock and, and just compressing the shock. It, it does feel that way. It's, um, it feels really sensitive in the beginning of the stroke, which I think is awesome. Yeah, it's it's um, more you know obviously more linear curve, almost um, you know mirrors the uh, suspension curve on the M16 in a lot of ways. Um, in higher leverage ratio at the beginning, which helps, you know, a little bit with the breakaway on the, on when you run air shocks, um, and a nice solid platform at SAG. Um, and then the bike progressively ramps up from there, um, to where, you know, you'll, you'll get all the travel out of the bike, but never harshly bottom it, um, when you have it set up properly. And, and our bikes, they do, um, we, you do tend to want to set them up with a little more SAG, um, we generally start at 30% on these bikes. Um, they actually perform better if you run too much sag than too little because um, the bike actually gets to kind of set into its sweet spot and, and do its thing um, and allow the, the uh, suspension to, to work properly. Um, and, and that's for both climbing and descending. Um, and if you run too much air, not enough sag, they tend to be riding a little bit high and it's not really sagged into that, what I call the bucket where it, the bike, when you pedal, when you put a lot of torque into it is going to isolate out like the low frequency input, which is Bob Mm. basically. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Cool. So it's like 30 to 35% sag. Yeah. I think everyone, you know, we usually suggest you start them at 30 Okay. Yeah, it's better than going the other way. Um, and that's so, you know, when you look at the static, we always toss this around here. It's kind of an interesting discussion about static geometry numbers um, versus sagged in geometry yeah. numbers. So, um, and a lot of people, I mean, you know, when you're shopping for a, a bike out there and you got your short list going, you know, you're looking at your you're making that list off of numbers you're seeing on a geometry chart, you know? Yeah. And and so, um, in some aspects, you know, it's like, Oh, some of the bikes in the past have maybe people saying, Oh, that's the heading was a little steep or something, but we're running at 30, 35% sag where you're riding. So it's actually, you got to think a little bit in that direction. And so, you know, we even tossed around, um, nowadays, you know, geometry charts are evolving, um, to where reach and stack heights and things like that and bottom bracket drop instead of height make more right. sense and with the different wheel sizes and stuff. Um, you know, trail numbers because, uh, especially on bigger wheeled bikes like, uh, 275, but specifically two niners, the fork offset makes a huge difference on yeah. how the bike is gonna handle, um, in combination with the head angle and that, uh, number of the tire contact. The trail, right, the trail steering, number, the mechanical steering trail. Yeah, and so um, you know, we're you're starting to see some of that go on geometry charts, and maybe even like sagged in numbers. That'd be kind of cool. You know? It does make sense, um, and especially on these bigger travel bikes like this, where it, it probably makes more sense. Well, I know it makes sense because when we look at it, we often you know factor that stuff in. 
like, oh, it's this bottom bracket height, but it's going to sag this much, and then it's going right, to be this right. bottom bracket height. Yeah. And, yeah, for sure. You know, just a quick question. This is something that I struggle with setting up bikes, and you obviously have worked with suspension bikes for a really long time. Maybe you could fill us in on how you like to measure sag. Because, like, I mean, I've ridden a little moto, too, and some guys like, oh, you sit down. Like, moto, it's more you stand up. I've even played with standing versus sitting sag on a mountain bike. Kind seat of up or seat down. Seat up or seat down. Yeah. Um, well, it's just, you know, trying to, um, the simplest way obviously is on, and especially with bikes with big air shocks in them like that is to measure off the shaft of the shock, a certain percentage, you know, um, which, you know, like 25, 30%, it's a pretty simple number, but uh, I think it's just actually getting the bike to balance in the middle, um, to where it's, it's, you know, at a, at a consistent you know, steady sag point and, right. and, um, uh, where you're not fluctuating it, like you have to be pretty stable, put it that way. Um, you know, uh, bikes, suspension frames in general that use linkages versus setting up sag on forks. It's a little different because, you know, you got a leverage ratio on the back and it's pretty much one to one on a fork. Um, so part of that is, you know, besides the number is a little bit of feel like, uh, you know, most guys that know how to set up a suspension bike will pedal around and coast and balance their weight over the middle of the bike like they're standing. And you, ideally, you want the front and the rear suspension to be moving together pretty well balanced right. as a starting point. I 100% and, agree. And so a lot of that is just the feel of it, too, what feels okay. right. Um, and I would add to your question, Nathan, I like if it's a downhill bike, I'll measure the stag sanding for sure. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. If it's a, if it's a, if it's like a marathon XC bike seated up for sure. And then maybe depending on the bike and the rider anywhere between all the way up or part way up or. Yeah. And the thing that happens, um, more on, you know, you mentioned the XC bike, shorter travel, um, you know, but you know, when you're standing on the pedals or seated, it's putting the forces into the bike in different ways, believe it or not. Oh, and, for sure. And if you're on an incline or a decline, it's also going to affect it. So It's right. also it, distributing the weight differently over the front and rear ex- suspension. Exactly. So, um, you know, these numbers of sag settings are just a starting reference, but it really yeah. always goes back to feel and when you ride and where you ride. And so I think people that are really in tune with setting up suspension – you know, that's a big part of it is you got to go take a few laps and you're going to make little tweaks. Yeah. Up I, and beyond that and, you know, to get it dialed and that balance between front and rear. I am a big proponent of running like a suspension brands front and rear because they have similar technology and feel to them. You know, they're just more designed to work together. Okay. You know, RockShock front and rear, Fox front and rear. It's just generally it's it's like a good practice. Um, and then usually their terminology, you know, codings, things like that, um, the, the way that they have their settings and all are, are you know, like so that yeah. um, they complement each other. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing for me. I always feel like it takes a little longer, but like whenever I get a new bike, um, it takes me a good like three rides of riding with my shock pump to kind of hone it in. And, uh, I, you know, have notes on my bike and be like, oh, you know, 185 pounds, cross that out, 175 pounds, cross that out, 165, like I'm kind of tuning it in as I go. Yeah. And, and, you know, everyone's different. Some people are more critical to that sort of, you know, the uh, finite, um, setup 
And some people are very, you know, they can hop on anything and it feels <laughs> good or go yeah. fast, you know. And exactly. Like, regardless of what bike they get on, they're just, you know, a specimen. Yeah. We all wish we were that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, um, any, anything else different or about the new tracer that you want to point out or? Well, I will say that, um, you know, keeping in true with the um, intense design philosophy, uh, kind of a form and function and a balance of those things um, that, you know, uh, personally, I think the bike's a real stunner visually. And, um, you know, when people see it, um, they're really attracted to it. Uh, I'm a big believer in, in strong aesthetics. And um, so the bike, um, and I feel it's one thing that Intense has always done pretty well. Um, and stay true to our branding and, and, um, that, you know, the bikes, uh, you, you know, you see it and the, your first emotional response is from a visual and right away you're, you know, you're kind of lusting for it. So, uh, definitely looks sexy. That's for sure. For sure. And I think um, you can tell it's an intense, just looking at it. And at the same point in time, you can tell that it's a progression. That's yeah, not just yeah. the, another, and, it's not the same intense. And so, um, we keep, you know, you have to keep, um, you know, evolving and changing and it is a process of, uh, constant refinement and, and evolution. Um, you know, and this bike's a good example. I think it's taken the, the current tracer was a pretty good looking bike. Uh, but I think we've raised the bar a little bit on that. And, you know, that's important. Um, I think in anything, um, you know, if you're going to buy something, it, there's, there's got to be a little more, um, there's a little more to it with a brand like Intense. Um, it's a passion thing too. Yeah, you there's know? an emotional and, connection. And emotional connection, not only, um, just visually, but with, you know, and then the, the ride experience too. We kind of like to call it the Intense experience. And <laughs> it goes, uh, you know, a lot, you know, pretty deep, I think. Um, and people who get it, you know, uh, also, you know, we, we like to offer these bikes in, and you know, the different colorways. We always have a, a wild and a mild. Um, I think an intense customer, a lot, you know, really is it's the, it's the wild, you yeah, know, and, for sure. um, we, we move a lot of those bikes and the tracer is no exception when people see it, um, and the colorways that are available, that sort of thing. Um, you know, um, it's almost, uh, you know, a mentality in a sense of if you don't know the difference, maybe it's not for you, you know, kind of thing, you know. Right. I mean, that might sound a little snobbish or something. I don't know, but um, it's... You've earned a little room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it is kind of, it's it, there's a bit of truth to that, I think. And, you know, um, I, I think, you know, a lot of intense writers are people who, uh, you know, are about performance and passion for writing and they like to make a statement. And, and... Uh, a big part of that is the people that like to be uh, separate themselves from the herd a little bit and zig when everyone else zags, that sort of thing, be a little different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you've got a, a, um, a unique cast of characters working here and a lot of real rippers and a lot of really artistic crafts type people. And Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned that, um, you know, because uh, – a good point with, with branding that's, you know, um, again, the, the whole is the sum of the parts and the influence, especially right now, the, the, the new products coming through the line here and that we're seeing now the current line of bikes, um, and the future, you know, um, coming up are, it's some really exciting stuff, but it's built and, and it's all been come from that passion for riding. And I have to say, like our staff and crew here and all the people we're working with from our ambassadors, 
to team riders, you know, um, product development, sales team, upper management is all, you know, it's like, uh, it's, it's the best group of people, you know, and in the perfect timing. Cool. And it's all starting to gel and come together. It's so freaking exciting. It's got to be really exciting. Yeah. I <laughs> it's intense. The smile on your face says it all. Yeah. Can I'm you getting goosebumps here. <laughs> just thinking about it. I don't want. I'm not going to ask you to to give away any secrets, but can you give a can you give our listeners any clues about the future trends that you see coming? Like, you see big wheels being a big thing. Do you see? What do you see in the future? Well, there's there is one, it's, and I think it's pretty obvious. And we were talking about a little earlier with um, the 29 inch bikes um, here in, in North America. Um, you know, there was uh, the 29 inch wave hit some years back. Um, and, and then along came 27.5 and now we're seeing like a second resurgence of 29. I think again, people are coming back to 29 inch wheel bikes again. Now, Europe, on the other hand, they're just experiencing 29 inch wheels for the first time now. First wave. The first, yeah. This is their first wave. They really didn't adapt on when, you know, like North America did first wave. Um, and, but, you know, 27.5 made sense. 650B had been around a while. It made sense, and that was a big hit. So now they're actually, you know, so there's a 29 is, I feel, in Europe is really just starting to gel. Um, we're probably going to see a lot of, uh, you know, from EWS, uh, you know, a lot of the top pro guys running 29-inch enduro bikes on certain courses. Right. Um, you think it's going to become a course-based a course based choice? A lot of the time? For a lot I, of I think so. Um, you know, the uh, 27.5 platform is here. To, it's solid. It's it's the, um, you know, default wheel size, I would say, for sure. Um, but um, s- there are certain courses that, um, you know, uh, where, you know, momentum and, you know, different factors come into play a little more and is more critical maybe over, you know, liveliness or, tight, you know, tight corners or whatever where uh people will feel like they're going to go faster you know and they'll pick the platform that they feel they can do that best on uh, and you know i can't really predict i think they're both going to be superstars for a while and um you know i don't want to try and sell one over the other um some people like one some you know it's like yeah there's, for sure there's choices. Mm-hmm. There's definitely lots of choices. So it no definitely seems, that. though, like the gravity crowd is embracing 29 more these days, where where the first wave of 29 was mostly trail and XC, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it makes total sense. I mean, in, in Tenses, we've had big travel 29ers uh, for quite a few years, starting with the Alloy Tracer 275, um, which they're really – that was – kind of a new territory. The Alloy like, Tracer 29. Yeah, Tracer 29, I'm sorry. Yeah, um, yeah um, you know, kind of busted that open. And then our Carbine 29 has been a huge success too. Um, and that bike has been in the line now since uh, 2012 or 11. Unchanged, right? Um, no, it's gone through um, it yeah, one, iteration. one um, update there. Yeah, um, it's actually ready for another one, but that's an, another story. So there's a hint for, time. The, for, the, for the listeners. <laughs> Constant uh, evolution and refinement here. Yes, that's what it's all about. But cool. But um, yeah, back to you know uh, 
the Big Travel 29 makes sense. And, and I always thought, you know, I, I never understood why Europe didn't grab it the first time because of the, some of the riding there in the, in the, you know, in the mountainous areas and, um, you know, uh, lift assisted and just open trail networks with, you know, chunky, rocky, ungroomed trails and stuff like for real all mountain riding they they're awesome for that right right um you know back in 2009 um we actually uh you know experimented quite extensively with 29 inch downhill bike with the uh the 2951 i remember that got a ton of press on that um and the bike actually everyone loved it it was awesome it was like people were surprised when they rode it um i think it was just a bit too early and ahead of the time um, there weren't the supportive, you know, like, um, you know, from the Good industry tires. yet. Yeah. And, you know, um, JD Schwangen actually raced it in a lot of the national series here, but, you know, as always, um, for World Cup, it, we just didn't have the tire selection you needed and that sort of thing at that level, um, forks and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but as far as it working and specifically on certain courses and things, um, Definitely. It's fast. Yeah. Um, we're talking, you know, racing, downhill racing against the clock. It's all about momentum and it just makes sense, right? Yeah. And especially on certain courses. So, um, you know, I know, um, there's going to be some interesting stuff, like I said, with intense factory racing, um, program being, um, we're putting a lot more emphasis on that. And for product development, you're going to see some interesting stuff this year. Yeah, it cool. kind of reminds so, me of, you know, back in the day in motocross when, you know, um, that first supercross you saw Doug Henry out, um, you know, in the field of 250 two strokes buzzing like bees and there's this thunderous four stroke <laughs> yeah. out there. You know, um, it's going to take some of that and the right guy to ride it for its strengths to really show it off. That and, makes sense. And, um, you know, the rest is history. And, and that thing. But, you know, um, again, um, with any in racing situation, sometimes, you know, um, you have to find the right guy that maybe, like you said, has got his mind in the right place with it and will ride it for its strengths and really make them shine. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah. That's cool. That, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, just out of curiosity, with with all the bikes that obviously you can ride, any of the bikes that you want, what what do you find throwing a leg over most often these days? Um, that's something I can't really talk about right now, <laughs> unfortunately. But it is always it's that prototype bike I'm working on okay. that I like I was saying earlier that kind of inspires me to ride, and yeah. that's in development. So you know, I've kind of moved on from the the tracer. It's a great bike, but see you sitting over there, like um, fond memories. But yeah, it's like but, an adult child off into the world, my friend. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and you know. Um, but for me and a lot of the development team, we're on, you know, alloy test mules or first carbon samples for 2018, 19. Stuff that the public may or may not ever even see. Yeah, you know, um, but probably right now, if I'm riding it, it's probably something that you will see yeah. eventually in one form or another. Okay. Yeah, we usually get through yeah. that stage, do it or don't pretty quickly. Um, but um, unless it's one of those really tough ones... Um, if you decide, you know, is that even a segment that you want right. to go into kind of, you know, right. you know, those sort of stories. So do you find yourself like, depending on the development project, um, kind of shifting maybe your riding style for, to kind of 
feel out that bike say for example you know you're developing the tracer you're kind of hitting some more hard hitting geometry but if you're going to develop say a more trail xc bike maybe you're riding will shift a little bit well um whatever bike we do we want to always put the intense spin on it right so um and you know with some of the there's going to be some future offerings where you'll really see that where we kind of do our rendition of something that's you know kind of boilerplate um and then actually maybe in doing so we create a whole new segment (laughs) possibly or a different type of riding so um that's what's kind of exciting to me at this time yeah um is um yeah and and i personally you know and uh, not not everyone has the luxury of this but i have quite a quiver of bikes to choose from so if i'm going to go ride at mammoth or park city or sedona or the trails out from my backyard i'm going to pick a different you know the right tool for the project right but at the same time you know, I could say in the line, the one bike that I could do that all on, too, you know? It's like the Swiss Army knife bike. We have that, too. Right. You know? um, it's just, you know, if, if I have the choice to have the optimum tool for for the job, I would probably pick that. So yeah. what do you think is the, the most versatile bike in your line? Is it the primer? I, I would have to agree with that, yeah. Um, actually, uh, another one that's kind of probably overlooked or a little bit of a sleeper is the ACV. Um, I think it, right now, if, if I were to go to Sedona tomorrow, I would take the ACV, the plus bike, because it gives me big balls there for sure. Yeah, <laughs> Got I, it. Cool. Yeah. You know, when I don't ride some of that stuff type of terrain that often, it just uh, opens up a whole lot of confidence. I could definitely see on hangover wanting the extra traction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, drops and things like that. That bike is, it's like the monster truck mentality, but you know, you got to do a lot of climbing there. Um, and you got to work for the descents and it does a great job of that too. So, yeah, yeah, it's very efficient for a monster truck. Yeah. You know, just pulling one out of the hat that, you know, tends to get overlooked. Maybe that's an interesting one. Yeah. You know, uh, a lot of the bike companies, um, we, we see this kind of in their offerings, like a little bit of the flavor of their area. Um, you know, we, we talked about like say pivot, for example, there in Phoenix and their geometry, at least for quite a while, kind of reflected their riding style. Um, would you say that this area kind of being on the backside of the Cleveland National Forest here might have influenced your take on bikes a little bit? Well, I would agree with that 100% early on in those early years I was talking about, you know, for yeah. full circle in this conversation about uh, the San Juan Trail and Cocktail Rock, the, designing actually the first real trail bike, that's the Spider with three inches of suspension travel, that sort of thing. And right. um, for riding single track, you know, and, and that is one of those kind of classic single track trails that has a little bit of everything. Yeah. Except for maybe mud, like real mud. Doesn't it's, ever really get that, but right. thank God, you know, we're lucky for that. But yeah, but yeah, but in all other aspects, it's pretty, um, it's a, was a good test ground. And uh, that's really, you know, and what you're saying now, I think it's much more a global reach and, and, um, we, our products are influenced from our European market. Um, you know, um, I have to admit, um, we have our, our distributor in the UK Saddleback UK is, um, they're like an awesome group of guys that are really into riding and you know they're driving current trends and things like that and uk in general is one of those market drivers you know it's a really 
uh, a strong uh, mountain bike market there and community and, and racing and everything, you know, for an island, basically, in the landmass <laughs> yeah. size, you know, it's right. pretty freaking awesome for mountain biking. And um, they drive a lot of the trends, too. So, you know, we actually use these other, um, imp- you know, resor- that's resources when we're designing bikes as input and feedback. Yeah, this is something we hear a lot from manufacturers these days about needing to appeal to a world audience and not just a SoCal audience or a Colorado audience. Or Yeah, it, it is. Um, and when you're talking, like I said, global brands and specifically with like the more core brands, it's really important that, you know, you're kind of um, your product is in line with what's happening around the world and not just in your backyard anymore. Yeah, right. for sure. There is a lot of varied terrain around here and, you know, people uh, more and more, especially in our area, so Cal here, we have a really incredible trail network that people have been building just like in other places. And I think it's, it's really good. Um, it's growing and getting more people into the sport because they can go out and ride in really, you know, fun trail networks and things like that that are easy to get to and close to home. Yeah, I think we have a lot of progressive creative riders too in our in our customer base, mutual customer base locally that are kind of part of the development and driving of the progression of the sport. Definitely, yeah. Like Chappie. <laughs> Chappy from Intense. He's a, he's one of those special blends for sure. Yeah, unique character. But you know, pulling a lot from his moto background and stuff. Yeah, huge props to Chappy for um, just uh, style and personality, integrity, all of that. And knowledge. Yeah, knowledge. Um, actually, we've just um, you know, uh, I've had my eye on Chappy from the beginning, and I said we got to move that boy out of sales into product development, and actually, um, he, he has kind of switched positions here, and he's he's actually the technical technical director for Intense Factory Racing, and um, and then he's also on the R and D uh, design staff now. Also. I think that's a really so he good splits move. his time between the two. Yeah, um, for what we w- want to do and where we want to go with um, the in- Intense Factory Racing program, um, we needed to take control of it at at that level, um, at the product level, and um, with uh, Bernat Guardia, Guardia um, as the manager, he has you know 15 years of professional World Cup racing experience behind him as a team coach and manager. But on the technical side, bar myself being out there all the time, but at this, you know, uh, Chappie, it was my personal choice to, to do that. And I, I think anyone who meets him or if you're at the races, come by and say, Hey, um, you know, he's one of those big personalities out there too. And, uh, just a great guy. Yeah. Good face for intense. For sure. We have a bunch of those here these days, and that's what's really exciting for me is to see my little baby here kind of growing up and <laughs> and be really proud of it at the same time. I can imagine. And having a, lot of, having a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. yeah, you can tell. Yeah, so. I'm excited that you guys are going to be at our demo demo on February 11th, probably with tracers, so customers can come ride them. You can count on that um, for sure, and um, yeah, it's just a matter of throwing a leg over that bike. Um, I think a lot of people will fall in love when they first see it and you know, be lusting for one. Yeah, yeah. we've hinted at, uh, on the show that there's going to be a hot new EWS type <laughs> bike coming from one of our brands, and now we can now we can talk about it. Yeah, yeah, it definitely brings the heat for sure. Um, w- one of the things uh, it 
it looks like uh, Intense has in its kind of history is kind of like adjustability built into the frame. And it seems like things are starting to kind of narrow down a little bit. And we're not seeing that as much, say, like different sus- suspension modes. Or I, I think back, I had a Uzi SL back in the day, and there's all sorts of adjustability built into that bike. Yeah. And um, coming from the early days of more of a pure race spread brand um you know i was building these bikes for racing and so we wanted some tunability to the idea was you could you know to change things a little bit for different tracks or riding styles or whatever um and you know that was a pretty strong design feature for a long time i think um what we've learned along the way too though is um people kind of um consumers and you know and intense fans out there kind of want us to figure, you know, we're the experts at this, to <laughs> us to figure it out for them, which is the best configuration for this and keep it kind of simple um, at the same time. So simplifying things, making it more integrated, um, you know, it's, it's, it is kind of a direction. Um, and even on the downhill bikes now, we've narrowed it down like the M16. There is some adjustability, but more and more, we're kind of, we are moving away from that. Uh, and, you know, it does open up, you know, there's a lot of uh, extra parts and things when you have adjustability. Um, uh, I used to see on some of the early bikes that you could really you could actually configure them in some ways that made the bike probably ride really horrible. (laughs) And we would see that occasionally, you know, we used to like them, someone built like the monster truck M1 kind of thing. And like, Oh my God, with the bottom brackets, like at 15 inches and you know, it's just, yeah, but you know, so yeah, um, that was the extreme case going in a negative direction, but, but, um, yeah, we've settled that down a lot and um, we're making those decisions for you to where it's at its peak performance right out of the box. Yeah. Kind of that, and I, I kind of think, think that the public is a little bit more open these days to some of the things that the athletes wanted back then, like low, long and slack. So you don't have, maybe back then you had to maybe make a, a bit of a transformer to, to, to make a bike that the public would be comfortable with the bottom bracket high yeah on. i would agree with that and then you always have the option to to tweak it out to the you know the race spec too yeah and, and that that was the idea but i think that, that the market in general has moved on from the idea that you can't pedal around a slack head angle or a low bottom bracket yeah um to a degree you know we're we're seeing shorter travel bikes that um you know have pretty aggressive geometry these days yeah. And, yeah. and now that the, you know, the fork manufacturers have figured out, um, you know, proper offsets and stuff for right. big wheel bikes and you can make them handle good. And, um, yeah, um, it's, yeah, every now and then I tell myself, I got to hop on like a, a bike circa 1995. Oh my gosh. <laughs> pedal it around a little bit, you know. Remember how much, how far you've come. Yeah, you know, and in certain situations, it might be fun to have that little sprint car, you know, kind of a feel on a single track. But um, with people building and, you know, trails with more features and, and aggressive riding, yeah, you might get yourself in trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would imagine so. I, I always wonder, you know, because the dirt bike world has this where you 
they have like evolution class where you can race bikes from certain ranges from the 90s. I wonder if mountain bike will ever get that. <laughs> There's just no time or room for it, I don't think. And and the yeah. question is why, I guess. You know, you, yeah, <laughs> yeah, vintage racing, yeah, definitely with automobiles and stuff. And, and, and that all makes a lot of sense, I think, for sure. Yeah, might might be might be quite a mess for mountain bikes. Clunk, well, we have clunkers. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they do have clunker races every now and again. Well, one of the things that I think is really cool with the, you know, you talk a lot about the intense aesthetic. Even looking at this new bike, I can see some of the like harder bone lines and angles that really, to me, do say intense. Like I still remember those hydroform days with machine chain stays and stuff like that. And I, I definitely can see some of the, the aesthetic coming through on it. Yeah, it's um, it's much easier to achieve that with carbon, you know, when you're molding yeah. something. Um, but in a sense, in the early years with the hydroformed, you know, uh, tubes and things that we were doing and um, monocoque construction, we were achieving a lot of that look, but with an alloy bike. Yeah. Um, you know, the risk these days with carbon bikes is that if you design in the carbon to be optimum, you know, from an engineering standpoint, freaking all the bikes are going to look the same. At the <laughs> right. same time, and they kind of start doing that a little bit. And so at the same time, you don't want to do something contrived that doesn't make sense from an engineering standpoint of carbon either. So it is a fine line to tread to make a carbon bike look different from everyone else but not look stupid, you know, from a design standpoint or engineering standpoint. And they go, right. you know, you're just adding weight or that's going to be really hard for consistent manufacturing, you know, things like that. So um, that is a challenge in itself. And in certain um, segments like uh, race bred uh, XC bikes, and they all look pretty similar. Oh, yeah. Right. You know, it has to be, you know, you're trying to, you're going for minimal weight, this sort of thing. Tubes get very round and, you know, certain types of construction are used to save weight and things like that. And so they end up looking a lot the same. Yeah. You know, going from the evolution from from aluminum to carbon, what were some of the biggest, I guess, door opening things or biggest challenges from going from aluminum to, to carbon? Well, you know, our specialty was always high-end aluminum and manufacturing of that. And, um, you know, I guess the early on, you know, when we decided that it, it was time that Intense had to develop carbon uh, mountain bikes or, you know, I would probably be back in the garage right now welding aluminum frames. Uh, but, um, you know... We weren't experts in carbon. I wasn't an expert in carbon. I had little experience with composites and that sort of thing. So, and, and that is why early on we positioned ourselves with uh, carbon developers like Seed Engineering and Cerro yeah. to handle that part and kind of, um, you know, so we got in the right factories, that sort of thing. Um, in more recent years, um, part of, you know, our kind of our, uh, you know, the renaissance I'm calling, um, reorganization a little bit of intense. Um, and when Chad Peterson came on board as our product manager, um, he brought a vast amount of experience with him, which was huge from, um, product management, product development years at Cannondale. You know, they do their own in-house carbon, you know, the whole time when he was there, um, a big part of all of that, um, 
you know, um, you know, really a top guy, you know, one of those ninjas I was talking about. And, um, so that, that was, uh, that's huge having someone like Chad on your team and, um, to be able to do what we've been able to do in the last few years and, and, you know, with all the new models we've introduced, um, you know, if, if you count the tracer in there in the last year is five product launches, which is pretty crazy. That's been a lot. Hard. Starting a year ago, about this time with the Spider 275, the primer, ACV, um, uh, Recluse, and now the new tracer. Yeah. That's a, a lot of design work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then new projects on going on simultaneously for, you know, out another year or so. Right. So there's a few product launches this year. So it's a constant thing, you know. Um, Just on but it, it wouldn't be ca- possible for us to, without someone like Chad. And so, you know, huge respect from my side and getting to work with someone like Chad. And, you know, not only, um, you know, he's like a one of my favorite humans that I know, um, an awesome writer and one of the most passionate writers I know. Um, he literally goes through with serious withdrawals if he doesn't get to ride his bike. So, <laughs> but he's, he, you know, he makes a lot of sacrifices too. To, so, um, to be able to do that, he's, you know, he spends a lot of miles, um, a lot of time in, uh, you know, in, in Asia and at the factories overseeing things and making sure they're done right. And, um, we have, uh, uh, to um you know in country um employees uh, in in Taiwan based out of Taiwan headquarters there that um oversee things too but you know Chad's the guru for sure so how many employees do you have now oh boy good question um i don't know uh, tw- <laughs> 20 let's see 25 and then like six in headquarters in Europe Cool. Intense Europe and Barcelona. So Intense owns your European distributor. Yeah, we we own our distribution for uh, all the mainland EU, and we have a, a Saddleback UK f- for the uh, for UK market. Cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's been a big step over the last year is getting that up and running, and um, so basically. Uh, product ships dealer direct from Barcelona to different markets, and we have sales reps in the different countries instead of individual distributors. Cool. Um, it's still a work in progress, and but you know, um, you know that European market is huge. We have a lot of fans over there, and there's a lot of low hanging fruit. I think um, opportunity for the intense brand, once especially once we get things set up properly, and that's kind of happening right now. It's kind of ex- it's pretty exciting. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Cool. I think I got all my questions in. Should I should I have asked you anything I didn't ask you? Ah, uh, boy. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I feel pretty good. That was a good chat. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, yeah, this episode, we're going to keep this one in the bag until the 7th, until the official release. 11.59 p.m. on the 6th. On the, that's right. 11.59 <laughs> on the 6th. Um, and then, uh, again, the bikes are going to be at the path on, on February 11 for, uh, people to throw a leg over and check them out and ride them. I think they're going to be really impressed. Um, uh, bikes look great. 
I mean, unfortunately, we didn't get to ride them a ton, so I'm probably going to actually have to visit the, the demo to get some good time on it. But uh, parking lot test was really promising. I'm told <laughs> we're actually going to take some back to the shop with us and go hide them and push something over them and so no one can see them until the 7th. So Nice. They'll be, a, they'll you be sh- hidden. You should do that because they're, um, they're going fast. Ah, we'll get them while they're hot. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> awesome. Hey, this was a lot of fun. Um, Next time, we should do this again. For sure. Maybe we should have a drunken um, <laughs> podcast and break out the tequila after every like question. Tequila. There you go. <laughs> we, um, and Next see time we should ride first, See too. where it goes. Yeah, yeah. yeah it'll, it'll get better and better. <laughs> it could be pretty funny. Anyway, yeah. Um, Sounds good. Well, with that, we, we always thank our listeners for, uh, for downloading and supporting Mountain Bike Radio. Come and visit the path whenever you're in the area. Um, Tani, we talked about having a new place for questions. Is that? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. So until then, um, continue to send your questions to sales at the path, uh, com, And we, we're keeping that backlog and we'll get to those questions and, um, participate in the Instagram. Hashtag the path podcast. And with that, we thank you for listening. Don't forget to love the bike you ride. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks.